0: How do you respond when somebody gives you a gift? Sometimes it's a little bit awkward. What if that gift is something that's meeting a tremendous need in your life? Then more than likely, you'll probably be overwhelmed with gratitude. But what if it's a gift that you don't really need? Perhaps you already have Sometimes there's this awkwardness in trying to respond in your reaction to the gift that has been given. Sometimes when we look at young people especially, we can spot (laughs) some of the ingratitude that manifests itself as young people often aren't uh, given to some of the social cues, maybe haven't thought about not disrespecting or doing things that are embarrassing. And so sometimes their ungrateful looks are evident. Well, when we look at Leviticus chapter two, what is called the grain offerings, the grain offerings probably more than any of the other offerings really are God's prescribed response to his grace to his covenant and even to what we might see here in chapter 1 of Leviticus the burnt offerings namely that the sinner can be accepted before God on the basis of an animal substitute somebody else taking that punishment in fact one of the early commentators on the book of Leviticus Andrew Bonar speaking of the grain offerings now he's basing this off of the King James Version, which calls these offerings the meat offerings, which probably was a good translation 400 years ago, but it's actually the only offering that doesn't have meat in it. And for some reason, it's called the meat offering in the King James, probably because it meant something different 400 years ago. But he says the meat offerings or the grain offering was generally or rather always presented along with some animal sacrifice, in order to show the connection between the pardon of sin and devotion to the Lord. The moment we are pardoned, all we are and all we have becomes the property of Christ. Ye are not your own, for ye were bought with a price, quoting 1 Corinthians 6.20. And I think Bonar's comment there encapsulates the gist of the grain offering, or as I'm going to call it, the tribute offering, as a gift to the Lord of devotion to Him in the reality that you have been forgiven of your sins. So, right from the get go, we can see almost immediately that while we do not practice this ancient ritual, it has tremendous application for us in the year 2021. But let's look first of all at the ritual and then we're gonna go through the rationale for the ritual. Let's look at the ritual. Let's pick it up in verse one. Now when anyone presents a grain offering, an offering to Yahweh, his offering shall be a fine flour. He shall pour oil on it and put frankincense on it. So this is called a grain offering. As I have already mentioned, I think it would be better to understand this to translate it not as grain offering, but as tribute offering. Now, the word that's translated grain offering, it, it it has nothing to do with the word grain, but the translators have surmised because everything else in the chapter talks about fine flour and it clearly is an offering of grain, they've chosen to translate it grain offering. But what does the actual word, the Hebrew word minha mean that that is translated grain offering here? Well, it's used in many other contexts. In fact, in some contexts, it's not even referring to a cereal or grain offering. In fact, in Genesis chapter four, when it talks about Cain and Abel's sacrifice, one of which was a meat offering, an animal sacrifice, one which was a vegetable offering. Both of those are called minha. The same word translated here is grain offering. It's used also elsewhere in the Old Testament to speak of a gift that an inferior person brings to a superior person. Uh, for instance when the Moabites and the Arameans were subjected to King David in 2 Samuel chapter 8, they come and bring David a gift, a tribute gift, a way of saying, we are now subservient to you, we are under your authority, and this is an act of devotion and homage and obeisance that we are bringing to you. It's also used in Second Kings chapter 17, when King Hoshea of Israel withheld a minha, a tribute offering from King Shalmaneser of Assyria. And Shalmaneser saw it as an act of rebellion. It's also used in first Kings chapter four in the same kind of way of somebody sending tribute to King Solomon. So it's used over and over in the scriptures as one who is subservient to a king coming and bringing a gift as a tribute to that king. When I was young and went to public school, I was a brown bagger. You know what a brown bagger is? It's the one who brings the brown bag lunch to school. You know, some, some kids might have brought the Star Wars lunchbox. Other kids, I don't know what it is today. Maybe it's Dora lunchbox or something like that. Uh, but you have the brown baggers or the lunchbox people. And then there's the people who bring the money, right? They bring the money to buy their lunch at school. Well, you've all heard of the proverbial bully who you have to you know to to give your lunch money to Well, in in some ways, that's a terrible illustration here because the, the tribute offering is something like the lunch money offering, okay? I'm going to give this to you, but it's a terrible illustration because this here is an offering that's in response to God's grace and his kindness, but it is, this is the similarity, an act of obeisance, homage, and devotion saying, you're the boss, you're the gooch, you're the one who takes my money, It's a tribute, a gift, demonstrated subservience to the true and living God. Notice here in verse 1, it's an offering. It's not, this is unique in that it is a bloodless offering. It's not an animal. It's not a goat. It's not a sheep. It's not a, uh, from the herd. It's not a bird. It's a fine flower Now the fine flour here, this was the good stuff. This was, you know, this wasn't the wheat bread. This was the the, the white bread, you know. This was the the tasty stuff. This was the more expensive stuff. It had been refined and, and came from the grits of the wheat. But then also notice you to pour oil on it. This is an important part of cooking process in the ancient world. But in addition to the oil, there was frankincense. Now frankincense was a, perfume and you don't have to be in Einstein to figure out that putting perfume on something makes it smell better but not necessarily edible and so the frankincense part went to that part that as we're going to see gets offered to the Lord on fire and there's a beautiful smell and fragrance that would have wafted through the room But there was another portion that the priest priest would eat and he would eat within the confines of the tabernacle. Now that part did not have frankincense on it. And I'm sure the priest was glad it didn't have perfume in his toast. Verse two, then he shall bring Aaron's sons, bring it to Aaron's sons, the priest, and shall take from it, a handful of its fine flour with its oil and with all of its frankincense, and the priest shall offer it up in smoke as a memorial portion on the altar, an offering by fire of a soothing aroma. There's that phrase again soothing aroma to the Lord, to Yahweh. Verse 3 The remainder of the grain offering belongs to Aaron and his sons, a thing most holy of the offerings to Yahweh by fire so we see here that part of this is offered up in smoke but the other part without the frankincense this is for the priest this is for the priest and notice it's called most holy now this phrase most holy if you trace it throughout the book of Leviticus it meant that you couldn't take it home in a doggy bag you couldn't take this home to your family to eat with you it had to be eaten within the temple it was set apart within the temple later on the tabernacle here in the desert uh, and it was it was considered most holy because it had to be eaten within the tabernacle temple confines verse 4 Now when you bring an offering of grain of a grain offering baked in an oven so now the first part was the uncooked. Now he's going to talk about three different ways in which this may be cooked. The first is it's baked in an oven. It shall be unleavened cakes of fine flour mixed with oil or unleavened wafers spread with oil. And, And so this first way in which it's presented is is it's baked in an oven now you know we have our ovens today that we think of in the kitchen that you open up and close it has a door this would have been in probably about an 18 inch high about a foot and a half oven that had a small opening at the, the 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 top part and there would be a little place to to put the food at the bottom and not everybody had one of these ovens and that's why there's two other ways in which this can be cooked as well The next way, in in verse 5, if your offering is a grain offering made on the griddle, it shall be of fine flour unleavened mixed with oil. You shall break it into bits and pour oil on it. It is a grain offering. So this one is on the griddle. This would have been a flat, flat pan and it would have been, you know, almost like uh, pancakes, hot cakes being grilled on there. No syrup. We're going to see that in a minute. No jellies. Uh, it had to be unleavened. There was no yeast. And, and also, we can see here that it, it's broken into bits. This probably would have been something like a, a pita kind of bread. Verse 7. Now, if your offering is a grain offering made in a pan, it shall be made of fine flour with oil. So here, this would have been not, not completely flat pan, but it would have been more concave like our pans today. And uh, it was also cooked on top of the fire. And so three different ways. So so the point being is, you know, you may be uh, of the uh, upper echelon of society and been able to have your own oven. Or maybe you only had a griddle. Maybe you only had a pan. But either way, neither of these were obstacles for you to bring this tribute offering and obeisance to the Lord out of thanks and devotion to him for his grace in your life. Verse 8. When you bring a grain offering, which is made of these things to the Lord, it shall be presented to the priest, and he shall bring it to the altar. Then the priest shall take up the grain offering, and it's, notice this, memorial portion, and shall offer it up in smoke on the altar as an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord. And the remainder of the grain offering belonged to Aaron and his sons, a thing most holy of the offerings of the Lord by fire. So again, similar instructions, whether it was for the raw... That was brought at the beginning or these three different ways in which it could be cooked. Here in these verses, part of the portion would be burnt on the altar. It's a soothing aroma to the Lord with the frankincense and it ascends to heaven. And then the other portion, it's most holy. It's to be eaten as a kind of snack for the priests within the tabernacle. Most holy to the Lord. Now, in the following verses, we're going to see some prohibitions, some, some no-nos when you're making this offering. Verse 11, no grain offering which you bring to the Lord shall be made with leaven. For you shall not offer up in smoke any leaven or any honey as an offering by fire to the Lord. As an offering of first fruits, you shall bring them to the Lord, but they shall not ascend for a soothing aroma on the altar. So here, in verse 11 and 12, it states that there wasn't to be any leaven or honey in these offerings. Now, is this because God doesn't like sweets? You know, God is on a diet? No. Okay? No honey was to be offered. Now, when we read the word honey... We think honey from bees, which this word includes honey from bees, but it was broader than that to include honey that came from fruits, namely like jellies that came from figs or grapes or things like that. It couldn't have any honey in it. And probably this prohibition is given because these kinds of jellies and honeys were staple offerings for the pagan Canaanites. And so God says, no honeys, no honeys on the altar. But then also it says no leaven, no yeast. Okay? So this was to be flat bread. It wasn't to be bread that was to be raised with yeast. Now, most of the people who write on Leviticus say no yeast, no honey because of their putrefying effects, their their effects of fermentation that they have on things. Um, because fermentation is a picture of death, and we see later on through the cleanliness laws of purity and purity things, death was a big thing that made one unclean. The problem with that interpretation is that later on in the book of Leviticus, as we're going to see, unleavened or there were certain offerings especially with the feast of first fruits where you were to bring leavened bread and so that doesn't seem to be the idea there but pause on that and we'll, we'll talk more about that later verse 13 every grain offering of yours moreover you shall season with salt so that the salt of the covenant of your God shall not be lacking from your grain offering with With all your offerings you shall offer salt. Salt. The repetition of salt. Salt mentioned three times here in this verse. Apart from salt making things delicious, I wonder what the significance of that. More on that later. Verse 14. Also, if you bring an offering of an early of early ripen things to the Lord. That phrase early ripen things probably is better to understand as firstborn things or first fruits. You shall bring you shall bring fresh heads of grain roasted in the fire, grits of new growth for the grain offering of your early ripen things, you shall then put oil on it and lay incense on it. It is a grain offering. The priest shall offer up and smoke its memorial portion, part of its grits with its oil and all of its incense as an offering by fire to the Lord. So here's this last offering. This is the the first fruits offering, those those first grains that would come up and during the harvest, these were to be offered on the altar and here again, similar instructions are given for this tribute offering. You say, well, this is interesting, Matt, or maybe not so interesting. What does this have to do with us? What does this have to do? What's the significance of all this? Well, one of the things you have to understand with all of this ritual, it's laden with symbolism, okay? It's laden with with symbols that are pictures of other things. And these other things are the theological realities that transcend time and have much application for us even as New Testament Christians here at 1933 Canfield Road in Youngstown. So what's the significance? Well, did you notice one of the phrases repeated throughout this It's repeated three times throughout chapter two here, memorial portion. We see it in verse two, a memorial portion on the altar. And we we see it repeated two more times in this chapter. That means that this tribute offering is something that is to remind you of something else or perhaps calling God's remembrance of some promise that he has made also as we as we mentioned early on this this idea of tribute or gift is one where you're subjecting yourself to the true and living God you're saying God is God I am not I am his servant So the rest of our time, I want us to think of three pictures that, that, that communicate tremendous theological realities, things that we're to remember, three pictures that give us things to remember so that we would subject our hearts and lives to the true and living God. The first picture, a flatbread that reminds us of a freeing redemption. Flatbread. We saw it. I mention it as we read through the text. Verse 4, unleavened cakes, unleavened wafers. Verse 5, unleavened. Verse 11, the prohibition, no grain which you bring to the Lord shall be made with leaven. Unleavened, unleavened, unleavened wafers. No leaven. Now, as I mentioned earlier, some take this symbolism to be speaking no death on the altar but again Leviticus 23 17 and 18 at the feast of Pentecost you shall bring in from your dwelling place two loaves of bread for a wave offering made of two-tenths of an ephah they shall be made of fine flour baked with leaven as first fruits to the Lord So clear instructions in Leviticus 23 that there were occasions in which you were to bring bread with leaven. And so the question then here would be, so then what's the point of the unleavened bread for the grain offering? Well, when you, let me do a word association here for you. Unleavened bread, remember firstborn, and covenant. What comes to your mind? Well, probably if you're a student of the Bible, you're thinking of the previous book, the book that comes before Leviticus, namely the book of Exodus. You're thinking of the Passover and the Exodus that God, when God delivered his people out of Egypt... The last great plague that God brought upon Egypt was the plague of the firstborn where God said that he would take the life of every firstborn male in every Egyptian household unless there was blood on the lentils and on the doorpost. And then there were specific instructions of a feast that was to be made consisting of the lamb that, that came f- from which they got the blood on the doorpost and on the lentils. And then there was to be an eating of unleavened bread and the, the unleavening of the bread was to not wait for the yeast to rise the bread, to raise the bread because God may deliver them at any moment and they were gonna be free. And so that's the symbolism that God gave. Let me read it for you in Exodus chapter 12 and verse 34. So the people took their dough before it was leavened with their kneading bowls and bound in their clothes on their shoulders. And so God told the Israelites for the Passover to eat it with unleavened bread. So it seems to me that this prohibition against yeast being used, this prohibition of leaven being used is to remind God's people Of his great hand of redeeming, his great hand of deliverance and freeing them out of bondage in Egypt, him remembering his covenant that he had made with Abraham, and him freeing them through these great plagues in salvation. And so this is a reminder of salvation, it's a reminder of God's grace. A reminder of how they were in Egypt and their baby boys were being drowned in the Nile River and the, 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 the Egyptian taskmasters were whipping them and, and making them provide to, to make a quota of building of, of of Pharaoh's projects, but they They were being cruelly beaten. And yet God had rescued them. It's no wonder that when we come to the New Testament, on the Mount of Transfiguration in Luke chapter 9, you remember there as Jesus' face begins to glow and there's only Peter, James, and John are there as witnesses, only the inner three disciples, the others weren't there, they see there is elijah and moses and there peter james and john no doubt probably with cupping their ear listening in on the conversation between jesus moses and elijah now how they knew it was moses and elijah i don't know maybe they had you know moses written on his his tunic on the back with a number there i don't know But somehow they knew it was Moses and Elijah there talking with Jesus and Luke records that they are talking about Jesus' upcoming exodus. He's talking about his departure, his death. But the Greek word exodus is used telling us that indeed for new covenant believers The great exodus, the great deliverance, the great redemption was not from the Egyptians in slavery, but through Jesus and him delivering us from slavery to the penalty and the power of sin. So, friends... The right response of bringing that tribute offering before God is a response that reminds us of God's great freeing redemption. Just like the Israelites remember God's hand of delivering them through the Exodus, we are to remember of God's delivering us through the cross. I remember some years ago a pastor telling a story of him explaining the gospel to this woman she was a a lesbian and, and he's explaining to her the freeness of God's grace that God will forgive you of all of your sins based upon what Jesus has done upon the cross and it's free, it's totally free you don't have to try to earn your way to heaven you can be forgiven of it all this woman's response, she said, I will not believe. And he said, well, why? Why wouldn't you believe in this free gift of salvation, this free forgiveness? She said, because if it's free salvation like that, then there's nothing that he couldn't ask of me. There's nothing that would be off-limits in my life that he could not say, this is mine. She actually understood the proper response of the gospel quite well. Because as Bonar cited, 1 Corinthians 6.20, it's true, You have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. There's nothing that's off limits in your life. Your life has been purchased by Jesus. The right response to the great exodus of the New Testament is absolute devotion to him. So friend, take inventory of your life. Are you bringing the tribute offering of your life to Christ in the workplace? Are you bringing the tribute offering of your life to Christ in your household, the way you lead your family, the way you parent your children? Are you bringing your tribute offering to Christ as a gift to Him in your friendships? Are you bringing your tribute offering to Christ in your bank accounts? The way you use your finances? The way you use your time? The way you use your talents? Christ is worthy of all that you are, all that you have. But it's not only a flat bread that reminds us of a freeing redemption. It's a savory salt that symbolizes a steadfast covenant. Did you see that in verse 13? God wants not sweets, but savory salt. Verse 13, every grain offering of yours, moreover, you shall season with salt so that the salt of the covenant of your God shall not be lacking from your grain offering. And if you just in case you didn't get it, with all your offerings, you shall offer salt. Salt. No, we use salt today. You know, you sometimes when my wife is making a dish, especially post-COVID, her olfactory senses aren't as good. And so taste this. I get a spoon in my face. And sometimes I'll say it needs more salt. The most common way in which we use salt today is for flavoring. And they use salt for flavoring in the ancient world to be sure. But here in this context and in most of its usages in the ancient world, salt was not used as much for flavoring but more so for preservation. To preserve something and we also use it today to preserve things, to keep them fresh, to keep things from going bad because salt, it has a preserving effect and kills bacteria and and keeps things from decaying and decomposing. And so salt here, when God speaks of the salt of the covenant... It's talking about when God makes a covenant, he preserves it with salt to highlight its enduring nature. That he will be faithful to every promise he makes. He will preserve the covenant with salt because he will be faithful to his promise. Listen to a couple other passages. Numbers chapter 18 and verse 19, speaking here of the Abrahamic covenant, all the offerings of holy gifts which the sons of Israel offer to the Lord, I have given to you and to your sons and to your daughters as a perpetual allotment. It is an everlasting covenant of salt before the Lord to you and your descendants with you. An everlasting covenant of salt. And even outside of Israel was is common, even amongst the pagans, when they would make a covenant, which is a sacred promise to one another, that they would often institute that covenant with salt. Salt. Salt highlights the enduring nature of God's everlasting promises. And so, salt was to be placed upon these grain offerings, these tribute offerings. And again, remember they're called memorial offerings as a reminder. God is faithful to all of his promises. One more salt passage. Second Chronicles chapter 13 verse 5. Do you not know that the Lord God of Israel gave the rule over Israel forever to David and his sons by a covenant of salt? So here the Abrahamic covenant was called a salt covenant. But also an expansion of that Abrahamic promise was the Davidic covenant that is instituted in 2 Samuel 7. It's reiterated by the chronicler. And here in 2 Chronicles chapter 13 verse 5, the Davidic covenant or the Davidic promise is called a covenant of salt. So what is the Davidic promise? The Davidic covenant. It's the promise that God gave to David. Remember when David said, I want to build a house for the Lord? And then God said uh, through the prophet Nathan that, You're not going to build a house for the Lord, I'm going to build a house for you. You are going to have a descendant upon the throne of David forever. And the chronicler says it's a covenant of salt. It's a covenant that God will preserve and be faithful to. And wouldn't you know, the opening pages of two of the Gospels, in the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke, they open up with a family tree, a genealogy that traces Jesus' descendants back to David highlighting that God was faithful to his promise, that he was faithful that there would be a descendant of David sitting upon the throne forever and ever. And that fulfillment comes true in the promise that God gave to David in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is a forever king through the resurrection of the dead. Because while all the other kings of David lived so and so many years and they either lived Faithful like David or unfaithful, they would die. But Jesus died and he rose from the dead and he sits upon the throne of David forever. And so, this is that seed of Abraham, that descendant of Abraham who also fulfills not only the Abrahamic covenant, but also the Davidic covenant. And again, my friends, this calls for a response. It's called a memorial offering, because as they would offer this, they were reminded by putting the salt on the offering that God will be faithful to all of his promises. And so, my friend, as new covenant believers, we can live on this side of the cross and see the amazing ways in which God was faithful to all of His promises, and we can be reminded of His covenant promises that He's given to us. Like Romans 8.1, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. As you're seeking to live your Christian life, and you see the Many ways in which you fail to obey Him and live before Him. And and some days you're tempted to think, you know, uh, can I stand before the judgment of God? Am I even a Christian? You lay hold of that promise and you squeeze it and you hold on to it and you say, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I trust in Christ alone to be able to stand before God. And you hold fast to that promise. And you eat some salty potato chips as a reminder <laughs> that God will preserve that covenant promise or how about Romans eight twenty eight? as you're going through trials and difficulties in life you remind yourself God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him to those who Who have been called according to his purpose. And you squeeze on to that promise. You say God I can't see how and what good you're working in this situation. But I know you are faithful to your covenant promises. So I'm going to trust in you. That you are working some good behind the scenes. And I will believe and trust in you. And then you also come. As you're a mind of of his covenant faithfulness. And you say to King Jesus, Jesus, you are faithful to all your promises. How can I live for you? I give my life as an offering to you. Isn't it no wonder that Romans, you know, Romans 1 through 11 <clears throat> Traces all of God's grace and his covenant faithfulness and his covenant promises and all the benefits of those who are in Christ Jesus. We just named two of them in Romans chapter 8. And then in Romans chapter 12, in verse 1, it mentions another kind of non-bloody sacrifice. He says, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, in view of God's mercy, To offer your bodies as a a living sacrifice unto the Lord, holy and pleasing to him. This is your spiritual service of worship. We come to God not with fine flour and oil, but we come to God with our lives in light of his freeing redemption in light also of what we see here with his steadfast covenant faithfulness. So we see the flatbread reminds us of freeing redemption, the, the salt that reminds us of God's steadfast faithfulness, now a perfume that pleases. A perfume that pleases. It is interesting to note that there's two ingredients here in this offering. One of frankincense, which was a perfume, the other of oil. And clearly the, the, the frankincense communicated the, the pleasing aroma it was to be unto the Lord, but that oil... Now, oil sometimes in the Old Testament is symbolic of the Holy Spirit. And this could be a symbol of the Holy Spirit as he is the one who enables our lives to be pleasing unto the Lord. But it seems to me, it's interesting, there there is another time in which this tribute offering is called for. And it's in Numbers chapter 5. And it's in a strange kind of ritual For when a husband suspects that his wife has been unfaithful to him. And and there's a whole ritual that's involved in this. It's, you know, sometimes called the jealousy uh, ritual. But there's a minha offering, a tribute offering that's to be given. And there's two things that were excluded that normally were part of the tribute offering. Namely, the frankincense and the oil. And it seems to me that the frankincense and the oil would be excluded because it wasn't a joyful kind of situation. It was a situation which the husband suspects that his wife has been unfaithful to him. And so it seems to me that the symbolism here of the oil is a symbolism that is communicated throughout much of the rest of the Old Testament as a picture of joy. A picture of joy. We see this picture of joy in Isaiah chapter 61 in verse 3. I'll just turn there quickly. Isaiah 61:3 it says to grant those who mourn in Zion giving them a gar- giving them a garland instead of ashes oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting so that they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. And so oil throughout the Old Testament often symbolizes joy. And so with this offering, it is an offering that is brought with a glad heart a joyous heart. So this is not a begrudging sacrifice thinking, oh, you know, I hate to give this away. No, this is this is much like the way Jesus explained it in the parable. Remember the parable of the treasure that was found in the field in, in, in Matthew chapter 13 and verse 14. A man is walking along the way and he finds this treasure hidden in the field, this precious treasure, but he's looking at the property and he says, I don't own this property, and so I can't take this treasure. Let me go. And it's, the text says, and enjoy over it. He sells all that he has so that he has enough money to buy this property and rightfully own the treasure. Enjoy over it. He, he separates himself from, from everything he has so that he can have this treasure. Jesus says, that's what the kingdom of heaven is like. And so this minha offering, this tribute offering, it's brought with a smile on the face. A smile again that's remi- remembering God's steadfast faithfulness, that's remembering God's freeing redemption in the exodus. And again, for a new covenant believer, my friend, think, think where you would be without Christ. Think where you would be on the road to perdition and darkness and eternal torment without the Lord Jesus Christ? Where would you be this morning without Christ? Think of the way in which God providentially brought people into your life to bring you the message of the gospel, the the intricate details that were organized to get you just where you needed to be to hear that message. And God, in the wonder of his grace, he opened up your eyes. And so now you come to him with joy. You're able to sing with the hymn, take my life and let it be consecrated unto thee. Take my hands, take my feet, take it all, God. But it wasn't only oil that was pleasing, pleasing to the offer, but also the perfume, the frankincense. I don't know, you know, sometimes you, especially around Christmas time, you go into... J.C. Penney's or one of those places and there's people ready to squirt you with some kind of perfume. I've, I've never seen frankincense amongst the items, the perfumes, the purchase. But it evidently was an ancient fragrance and as it was burned on the altar, that fragrance would, would have ascended into the air and created this beautiful smell. And it certainly is highlighting that, that the believer, as he is united to God in covenant and as he brings his gifts to God, while they may not be very worthy in and of themselves, but because you are in covenant relationship, it is a pleasing aroma unto the Lord. It makes me think sometimes of, you know, sometimes uh, young people will give me gifts, offerings at the end of the service, or sometimes my children will give me offerings. It'll be a a picture. (laughs) Maybe it's a family picture. And as I receive that offering, maybe it doesn't have the exquisiteness of a Van Gogh, it's not, the, the symmetry of my head is not quite right. But as I receive that offering, it brings great pleasure to my heart because I know it came from love. I know that it may not have been brought with the greatest skill and artistic abilities but it was brought with a heart that wanted to show daddy or to show the pastor that they love him so in a similar way my friends we bring our gifts to almighty God and we may look at our own gifts and say God what can I bring to offer to you what kinds of skills do I have what kinds of abilities But my friend, as you bring your skills and gifts and abilities to the Lord and as you are united to Christ and as it comes out of a heart of devotion and love to Him, it's a pleasing aroma to Him. It's pleasing to Him. He accepts it with great joy and delight. And He probably even stuffs it in a drawer To look at later. (laughs) Friends, we ought to come with this kind of devotion. Jonathan Edwards, the great colonial pastor, theologian, he's famous for his resolutions. When he was 20 years old, he wrote, I can't remember how many resolutions there were, I think 70 some resolutions and the amazing thing about these resolutions is that he, he read through them every week for the rest of his life one of these resolutions resolved to live with all, my, with all my might while I do live resolve never to lose one moment of time but to improve it in the most profitable, profitable way I can Resolved never to do anything which I should despise or think meanly of in another. Resolved never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. He understood. He understood the proper response to the gospel. Friend, maybe you've never, never responded to the gospel properly. This gospel, we we saw the picture of this gospel in chapter one laid out as, as the, the Israelite would come and put his hand upon the, the lamb or put his hand upon the goat or put his hand upon the animal that was from the herd and he pressed his hand and he transferred his guilt to that animal and then cut the throat of that animal and that animal was then burnt on the off on the altar in whole and we saw that that was a picture of Christ as the one who is our sacrifice and in the gospel is that Jesus died on the cross and he absorbs all the guilt and all the punishment that we deserve but we have to come to him we have to press our hand into his head we have to trust and believe that he paid the price for our sins and the bible says we also have to repent the first response of the gospel is one where you trust in christ alone you don't trust in how good of a person you are but you also say jesus you're the boss now You call the shots in my life. You are the king and I subject myself and my life to you. Friend, if you're sitting here this morning, you've never done that for the first time. I appeal to you on the authority of God's word, repent and believe in Jesus. He's willing to forgive all, but you must come with the offering of your life to him. Don't delay. Tomorrow is not promised for you. The Bible says that today is the day of salvation. The next breath is not even promised to you. You don't know when you will die. Don't delay. Young person, you may think you have the rest of your life to live. You may think that, you, you know, I'll grow up, I'll get married, I'll get a job, I'll do this and do that. But my friend, you don't know. Tomorrow is not promised. There was a young person riding his bike on Mahoning Avenue yesterday who got hit by a car. You don't know. So don't delay. Turn to Christ and hold fast to Him. And for those who have taken that first step of faith and trust in Him alone, And you've brought your life as a tribute offering to him. Keep offering your life to him. Because Jesus said we take up our cross daily and follow him. And it's no wonder that it is an interesting thing when we look at the New Testament. When the Lord Jesus is here on earth. And as people in their hearts spilled over in love, devotion and homage to him that they bring perfume to Jesus, much like this tribute offering. We see it in the opening pages of the Gospel of Matthew. Remember those, those wise men, those magi from the east, they come and they bring their offerings and they bring their gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Uh, we see it even in, I think it's Mark chapter 12. We see it in John chapter 12 with Mary of Bethany. Jesus had raised her brother Lazarus from the dead and she loved Jesus. And you remember she broke that bottle of expensive perfume and poured it upon Jesus and Jesus said that she was anointing his head for burial and those who were looking on even the disciples got swept up into the lie of Judas and and thought well that's just a little bit extravagant that's just a little bit too much and Jesus said no she did what she could but then there's another example another instance It's in Luke chapter 7. There's that woman there. Luke describes her as a sinner. She had probably lived a life of prostitution, a life as an outsider amongst the people of Israel. And you remember Jesus is eating inside the house of Simon the Pharisee. And in comes this woman in Luke chapter seven and verse thirty-seven. It says, "And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that she, and when she learned that he, Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume." And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And she kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with perfume. Do you remember the Pharisees looking on said, if Jesus were a prophet and knew what kind of woman this is, he wouldn't even let her touch his feet I mean imagine that, imagine being there and seeing this woman just sobbing in tears and and pouring over Jesus with her tears and grabbing her hair and washing Jesus' feet and then breaking this this expensive vial of perfume was probably her life savings and pouring it on Jesus' feet. You say, what could explain such devotion? What could explain such radical homage, devotion, and obeisance before Jesus? Well, Jesus doesn't leave us to guess because he looks at the crowd of scoffers, the crowd just probably disgusted at this woman. And he gives them a little bit of a parable. He, said, he says to Simon, imagine a man who has a large debt an enormous debt that's forgiven, and another man who has a small debt that's forgiven. And imagine the the lender cancels both of the debts. Who is going to love the lender more, the man who had the smaller debt forgiven or the man who had the larger debt forgiven? Well, Simon answers rightly, and he says, I imagine the man who had the large debt. And then Jesus looks at them and says... This woman, she loves much because she's been forgiven much. She was extravagant in her devotion, in her tribute, dare I say, tribute offering before the Lord, because she knew the great debt she had accumulated up to high heaven that was a stench of sin and rebellion and using her body for gain and God the Almighty had forgiven that debt through the Lord Jesus. Friend, Jesus calls for your devotion this morning. He's worthy of it. Do you love him much because you've been forgiven much? Let's pray.